I am a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be depended upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts and beer. Abraham Lincoln. Hi, I'm Tamara Michelle, and we are Real Conversations Podcast, recorded in Dauphin, Manitoba. Today is a special broadcast as I host a doubleheader. When I discovered that one of the forerunners in the race for the National Conservative Party leadership election was in Brandon, Manitoba at the Victoria Inn Thursday, August 4th, I hightailed it to the city next door for the meeting at the Pierre Polivier balloting party and rally. I was treated with respect as independent media, and I'm able to bring the following coverage. Please be advised the following is political in nature. How are we doing? I'm Dan Major, member of Parliament for Dolphin Swan River Deepwater. And uh, we're here this afternoon to hear from our future leader of the Conservative Party candidate. Thank you, thank you. Great to be here in the great province of Manitoba. God bless the prairie. Thank you all for coming out here today. What did you come here to do? important thing of all. That's what puts you in charge. You know, the org structure. The org chart. You ever heard of an org chart before? Yeah. It decides who's in charge and who's not. Who's on top and who's on bottom. The problem is in Audible right now, they've got the org chart upside down, right? My minister thinks he's the boss. And the House of Commons works for him and the people work for the House of Commons. Actually, it's exactly the opposite, right? Yeah. People are on the top, the commoners underneath, and the Prime Minister is on the bottom as the chief servant of the nation. And that's what we're going to restore, isn't it? But the way to find out who's the boss is it's the person who can hire and fire. And how do you hire and fire in a democracy? By voting. Voting is the most important thing you can do. I remember back in the 2015 election, tough election. Uh, the Liberals were sweeping into office, and I, I represent a liberal city, Ottawa, and so I thought I could be in some trouble. And at 9.25 or so that night, I was out pounding on doors, five, ten minutes left till the, the, the polls would close, and I knocked on this lady's door, and I said, have you voted? She said, no, I am too old. I said, well, there's no cap on the age limit for voting. And she said, no, I, I'm too old to drive. I said, I'll drive you. My husband is too old to come down the I said, I'll carry him. And she said, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. She closed the door and I walked back out into the rainy street. And I knew there were only a few minutes left before polls would close. And that if there was going to be any vote that I would win, it would be by going back and trying one more time with that lady. So I knocked and she came and I said, soldiers have died so that you could vote. And she said, oh, all right. <laughs> got her husband down the stairs, we slowly got him out to the car, and then we had the problem, he couldn't get his walker into the car, I didn't know how to fold it, so we rattled around with that for a minute, finally got it in, there was no any more room in the car for me to get in, so they tore off to the polling station where I stood in the rain, and um, about uh, 10 minutes later, they came back, and my volunteer got out of the car, and he said, I got there at 9.29, one minute before polls closed, but they'd already locked the door, so I banged on the door, and I said, you have to let these people vote because they made it here a minute before the deadline. So they let the couple go in and vote and they cast their ballot. And now um, at that point I heard the story and it warmed my heart and I walked up to that lady and I said thank you, thank you, thank you. I know how hard that was for you. And 
and she said, and who are you again? <laughs> so I still don't know if she voted for me. <laughs> so, uh, Dan, thank you very much for the great welcome here today. Great to be with a uh, member of parliament for the Dolphin region. Great to champion former farmer. He farmed poultry and beef, and he was the big head of the biggest farm organization in Manitoba. He has roots in both this province and in neighboring Saskatchewan, as I do, uh, as my folks are from Saskatchewan. He has two kids, a great family man, and he's been one of my top advisors on farming, on outdoors issues, on firearms, and on countless other issues that matter to the people of rural Manitoba. Thank you, Dan, for serving people. I just got to Manitoba yesterday and the day before we were in Saskatchewan. We went to Prince Albert. We went to the Battle Furnace, to Saskatoon, then down, way down south to um, Weyburn, Estevan, uh, back up to Regina, Mooseman, and then we drove here today. So that's all in about uh, 72 hours. A lot better to be out on the ground talking to the prairie people than to be scooped up in a little hotel room with uh, Joshua Ray, right? <laughs> down in Costa Rica, but I've always believed that the best sunsets and those sunsets in the world are right here in the Canadian prairies, right? Does anybody have a scientific explanation as to why the sky is bigger in the prairies? If you do, you come up and explain it to me afterwards, but there's no doubt. When you're in the prairies, that sky is big, it is open, and it reminds me of my childhood. My folks are from Saskatchewan. They moved from Saskatoon to Calgary in 79. Two school teachers, they adopted me there. I'm born of a 16-year-old unwed mother who just lost her own mom, so she put me out for adoption. I was raised right there in Calgary, Alberta. We always go back to Saskatchewan for the summers to visit with farming relatives. I wasn't a farmer myself. I if I had been, I'd be outstanding in my field. <laughs> that being said, my folks always taught me that it didn't matter where it came from. It mattered where I was going. It didn't matter who I knew, but what I could do. And that was the great thing about Canada, right? This is a country based on merit. Let me a famous last name. This is a meritocracy, not an aristocracy. But lately, people have felt they've lost that sense of opportunity. They believe that there's a small class of privileged elites who get ahead by letting off the working classes of the nation. We see it right now. I mean, look at Justin Trudeau. I don't fault the guy for taking a vacation. I really don't. Even an incompetent prime minister is entitled to a little time. That's it. I do find it interesting that he burned more fuel in his jet last month than an entire truck convoy would have needed to go from Regina to Ottawa, right? to think it's okay for him to burn fossil fuels. The vacation he's on, which again, I don't fault, is not possible without hydrocarbons. You cannot get there uh, unless you use fuel. There's actually no electric airplane that can fly you from Ottawa to Costa Rica. And yet, he believes in punishing every other Canadian for using our traditional sources of energy, including by putting people out of work. He's brought in this new carbon tax uh, with the support of Jean Charest 
has been driving up the cost of gasoline, diesel, and everything that you must transport by train or truck. We see the results every single day, whether it's the Timmins miner who couldn't afford to gas up his truck to drive and see his parents who were dying one last time in Thunder Bay, or the energy worker in St. John's, Newfoundland, taping up his boots because the gas prices mean he can't, couldn't afford new ones, or the single mom who's putting water in her kid's milk because she can't afford groceries. This story is more and more common as this government uh, floods our economy with cheap cash and then taxes the energy sources that power our economy and allow us to live in a big, cold country like ours. The problem is... We're creating more cash, but we're not creating what cash buys, right? You know, cash isn't wealth. It's just a technology by which we move value over space and time. If you have 10 loaves of bread and $10, it's a dollar a loaf. But if you double the number of dollars to 20, you still have 10 loaves. It's all of a sudden $2 for each loaf of bread. It's not rocket science. And that's what's happened. Trudeau's brought in a half trillion dollars of new deficits uh, over the last two years. More money chasing fewer goods, which leads to higher prices. And then meanwhile, he's attacked the productive forces of our economy. So how are we going to reverse this? One, we're going to get government spending under control. You've been pinching your pennies long enough. It's time that government started to pinch against pennies, too. We'll get rid of this infrastructure bank and the corporate welfare programs that are deliberately to set up to guarantee the profits of large corporations and protect them against loss. If these projects lose money, then they get bailed out and we pay the price. That's not how the free market works. In the marketplace, if you do well, you make money. If you, if you don't, you lose money. You can't separate risk from reward and put it on to taxpayers. We're going to bring back the free market and get rid of the crony capitalism that the liberals have brought in place by getting rid of the infrastructure bank. Second, we're going to save a billion dollars by defunding the CBC. And you get a deal on the trip, so you come in under budget. But you can't just go to $4,000 or $6,000. You have a family budget. And budgets don't balance themselves, right? No. So, here's the thing. The great economist Thomas Sowell said, the number one rule of economics is scarcity. People always want more than there is to have. And the number one rule of politics is to ignore the number one rule of economics, right? Politicians are the only creatures in the universe that do not have to live by scarcity. The birds and the trees, the fish and the seas all have to make maximal use of limited resources, but not politicians. They simply print the money, tax the money, or borrow the money, and pass the costs on to everybody else. How are we going to end that? We're going to bring the law called the pay-as-you-go act. The pay-as-you-go, well, yes, we're getting rid of Trudeau. That's the first thing. <laughs> 
helpful audience, you know. We have helpful suggestions, Keith, but we should even have a suggestion box. This is good stuff. But we'll get rid of him. We'll bring in a new law. It says that if the government brings in a new dollar of spending measures, they have to find a dollar of savings to pay for it. Uh, they, yes, that's right. You can, you can interrupt my remarks with your applause. They did this in Washington in, in the 1990s, and they balanced the budget and paid off $400 billion of debt. The economy boomed because all that money was freed up instead of being lent to the government. It was invested in businesses, and jobs were created. Inflation was low. Unemployment went down. That's because the government lived within its means, right? It takes a law to do it. Because as soon as that law was lapsed in Washington, they went right back into deficit and have not emerged since. You need legal limits on government spending, and that is what I will do to get rid of our deficit and leave more money in your pocket. Yep. more cash, we're going to create more of what cash buys. That means building more homes, growing more food, and producing more Canadian energy in this country. Yes. That's what we do. Try to get the gatekeepers out of the way. We've become the country where nothing can get done. We're ranked 64th on Earth for countries wait times to get a building permit. But 63 other nations, you get a faster building permit than here in Canada. It happens in housing. No wonder we have the fewest houses per capita of any G7 country, even though we have the most land to build on. No wonder our young people can't afford a place to live. I'm going to link the number of dollars big cities get for infrastructure to the number of houses that actually get completed. So they'll have an incentive to deliver faster and more affordable building permits. Second, I'm going to sell off 15% of the 37,000 federal buildings that are underutilized, and many of them are outright empty now because of remote work. We're going to to sell them off, convert them into housing, and it warms my heart to think of a beautiful family pulling up in their U-Haul and emptying out their belongings into their wonderful new condo in the former headquarters of the CBC. we are 
automatically and arbitrarily cut fertilizer use by 30%? Well, I'll tell you what, you'd need more land to grow the same amount of food. You'd have to run the combine, the tractor further to harvest that food. And you drive the food production to more affordable jurisdictions outside of Canada that don't have our environmental standards and have to burn more fuel to transport it up to our stores. That's exactly the opposite of the state policy, right? We want to protect the environment. Let's bring food production home to Canada. We have the most environmentally friendly farmers on planet Earth. I've seen it in my own riding. We have the Suntech tomatoes, little miracles of Manitech. It's a, uh, a little um, uh, grow up. They have to be the beautiful, not that that kind of grow up. <laughs> tomatoes that go in salads, but they were being carbon taxed for releasing CO2 into the greenhouse, even though that CO2 is absorbed by the plant life. Justin Trudeau missed that day in grade four science class. And so, so they're paying this carbon tax, so it's more affordable to buy a Mexican tomato in Manitech than a Manitech tomato in Manitech. Burning all that fuel to train and truck Mexican tomatoes to our grocery stores, we should repatriate local farm production, get off the backs of our farmers, get rid of the carbon tax, and get rid of the red tape so our farmers can produce more food. Yes, indeed. And we've got to end the government's love affair with foreign oil. Here we are. He's against tankers offshore. So he's banned export tankers from leaving the British Columbia coast. But he welcomes them in the East Coast. Tanker after tanker after tanker coming from the Middle East, bringing Saudi Arabia, now Nigeria, and another foreign dictator oil to our shores, displacing our workers. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my plan. I'm going to get rid of the Anti-Energy Act C-69. We're going to allow more Canadian oil production. I'm going to approve Newfoundland's plan to increase its production by 400,000 barrels a day, which will fully displace all of the overseas oils we're bringing in in New Brunswick. And within five years, we will end all overseas oil from Canada altogether. somewhere, there's a bunch of Putin's apparatchiks rolling around in gut-splitting laughter, thinking about how gullible our prime minister is. You see what he did a couple weeks ago? Putin said, I want my turbines back, right? Yeah. Uh, well, apparently we're doing maintenance work on Russia's pipeline turbines. So we ban, tur- we ban pipelines from being built in Canada, but we're happy to maintain them for other dictatorship countries, right? So, so we're, here we are with uh, Siemens Canada in Montreal, fixing up these turbines. And Canada brings in sanctions on Russia. But then Russia says, I want you to break those sanctions to send me back the turbine. And then Germany starts bawling its eyes out. Says, please, just do what Putin says. We need the gas, so he just send him the turbines. And Justin says, oh, all right, we'll break our own sanctions and give him back his turbine. And so uh, Putin gets his way. But here's the great irony of it. We have 1,300 trillion cubic feet of natural gas right here in Canada. Do you know how much of it we ship overseas? Zero. Zero. Why? Because the 15 natural gas liquefaction projects that were proposed when Trudeau had got, took office, you know how many of them were completed? Zero. Zero. 
world. Not a single one. Our anti-energy policies, our slow building permits make it impossible to get it done. Even though we have all the natural advantages. Do you know that Newfoundland is the shortest shipping distance to Europe in all of North America? You know, the shortest shipping distance to Asia in all of North America is British Columbia. We have a shipping advantage. And you know how you get natural gas onto a ship? You have to turn it into a liquid. And how do you turn a gas into a liquid? Cool it down. What do we have in Canada? Cold weather. It's our most abundant natural resource. Right? In fact, Dan was telling me, where is Dan? Over here. Dan was telling me that it was so cold in Ottawa last winter, he actually saw liberals with their hands in their own pockets. projects in New Brunswick. I'm going to fight to try and get the Quebec government to accept the LNG Quebec project, a $14 billion project that originally Warren Buffett wanted to invest in. I'm going to fight for LNG projects in British Columbia as well. We're going to cool that gas down to not minus 161 degrees, put it on a ship, send it to Asia to displace dirty coal fire there, and send it to Europe to break European dependence on Putin once and for all. that stand in the way of your freedom of speech in this country, right? You know, this new woke culture where they get to tell a small group of wokesters get to tell us all we're allowed to see and say. They censor our students and our faculty. They drove Jordan Peterson right out of the University of Toronto because he he wasn't towing the politically correct line. Now Trudeau has C-11, a bill that would allow the CRTC gatekeepers to control what comes up in your news feed so that we have to get all of our news from the approved liberal media uh, on Parliament Hill. Then they want to uh, dictate what our students can say. Well, here are my, here's my plan. I'm going to patch on the Freedom of Speech Act. Here's how it will work. What? One, I will cancel all the censorship laws that Trudeau has brought in, including the Act. I will require all universities that get federal research grants to attest that they will they will uh, respect Section 2B of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That means, yes, that means that if you want federal research grants, you have to respect the freedom of expression of your students and your faculty. You can't drive them out of their studies or out of their jobs as professors because they won't toe the line. 2B, Section 2B, as Shakespeare would say, to be or not to be? That is the question. My answer is yes. We will defend freedom of expression in this country. Prime Minister John Giefenbaker, when he signed our Bill of Rights, he wrote, 
I am a Canadian, a free Canadian, free to speak without fear, free to stand for what I think right, free to oppose what I believe wrong, free to worship God in my own way, free to choose those who shall govern my country. It is this heritage of freedom I pledge to uphold for myself and for all of mankind. Thank you very much, everyone. Stay tuned for a second episode later this evening. See you soon.